if you point to one thing that Craig Council has done best as manager, it's that. It's installing this outgetter mentality. It has led to good things. Now, now Corbin Burns has the equipment to be that guy to go out and throw all nine innings. And if he's good enough, they'll they'll definitely let him do it. But it's because he sort of put the ego aside for a time and has pitched in all these different roles and gotten the development where he can get it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by Adam McCalvey, the Brewers beat writer for MLB.com and author of The Milwaukee Brewers at 50, this gorgeous coffee table book that takes you through the decades of Brewers history. And that's actually where I want to start, Adam, is I want to ask you, in this season of celebration, what have we missed besides Cardinals Brewers so far? from how they would have honored the 50th anniversary of the of the brew crew well yeah everything basically i don't know if the cardinals were part of one of these weekends but going into the season the brewers had planned five separate weekend celebrations one for each decade so you know in april there would have been a 70s weekend and they would have worn their old you know 1970 uniforms and uh, brought in some of the players from that early era of the franchise and then you move on 80s uh, 90s 2000 and then 2010 would have been a big cart you know that's 2011 NLCS against the Cardinals was uh, one of the highlights then of the the most recent decade the 2010s so all of that had to be canceled and you know that there are players who I spoke to in um because uh, we have a nice 50th anniversary Brewers book out. Um, and there are, there are players who are involved in that who, you know, they're disappointed because they were looking forward to coming back and um, sort of seeing some of the guys perhaps that they played with and um, celebrating that, that weekend. So I, I don't know for sure that this is the case, but I think I have a feeling that the Brewers are going to find a way to do this next year, even though, you know, that anniversary technically will have passed. But look, 2020 is all about adaptation. And I have a feeling they're going to adapt and try to do some things next year to not lose out on that, you know, all of that, uh, that history. Yeah. Was the, uh, was the return to the MB ball glove logo tied to the 50th anniversary or was that sort of a convenient reason to return to it, which they wanted to do anyways? I think it all kind of fit together as I remember the explanation, right? That they had been thinking about this for a very long time. I mean, five yeah, trying to bring it now. back. Yeah. yeah. And they had slowly brought it back to some degree. And they also had kind of adapted it where I, I forget what year it was where they started wearing an alternate, uniform that had the ball and glove logo uh, but with a navy instead of the royal blue so that it sort of blended the old and the new and those were so popular when they would wear those that it was just pretty obvious that you know there there was an appetite to bring to bring this look back Um, so I think it all kind of fit together I I wouldn't call it a coincidence but the timing matched with um, sort of celebrating the Santa so the Cardinals and Cubs are obviously widely regarded and heralded as, you know, one of the longest rivalries and maybe the biggest rivalry sort of in our time zone. It's certainly the longest rivalry in baseball between two teams that have never moved. Um, they've never moved cities from when they started to where they are now. And 
one of the reasons why if you get way back into the history like the 18 what 70s 1880s i guess it is um the cardinals were founded the team that became the cardinals they didn't have the cardinals name then but the team that became the Cardinals in the National League was essentially founded to compete with the Cubs, the team that became the Cubs. Like that was their purpose. That was why they were started was like to take championships or to, to go toe to toe with the team from Chicago, part of like kind of civic pride for the Brewers. How much, because they started in the American league, how much were they related to the Cubs and Cardinals early on? I mean, you had the Cardinals and Brewers, playing in a world series, but really were the Cardinals and Cubs part of their history early on, or were they just kind of figments in another league that now have a more prominent place? Well, I think that Chicago in general was connected because the white Sox. there, there's a long history between the Brewers and or, I'm sorry, between Milwaukee and the white Sox. And then there's also a history of when the Milwaukee Braves left in 1965 of a lot of, Braves fans sort of following the Cubs because it was nearby and you could pick up WGN and hear the games. So the Milwaukee Braves existed from 53 to 65 and first nationally club to draw 2 million fans. It was a, it was a real success story. And as quickly as that became a big thing, you know, the team in town, it faded away and it was for a, bunch of different factors, one of which I found as I researched this book was that they changed the rule that prevented people from bringing their own beer to the ballpark. <laughs> and people were furious. I mean, I I saw one newspaper story, and I don't know if this was satire or a joke or a real deal, about literally fans wheeling in a keg of beer to County Stadium for a Braves game. And now they were going to start charging, you know, whatever, 40 cents for a beer. And it really soured a number of fans on the the ball club. I think that was one of many of several factors. But it by the early 1960s, they were in big trouble. Um, So here comes Bud Selig and he founds this group of civic leaders to try to keep the Braves. They actually took the case to court to try to keep the Braves from moving to Atlanta. Um, And that failed, obviously. And then there was this interim period where I think, um, again, like I said, I think many fans started to follow the Cubs and Mm -hmm. there became this connection, especially in far southern Wisconsin with the Cubs. But then the White Sox each year began to play some of their games in County Stadium because Mm -hmm. they were not drawing well at Comiskey and they picked up as many as 10 games a year. Um, wow. up here, at, up, up here, I think 11 games a year, one year at County Stadium. And they're actually then developed this relationship with uh, Milwaukee baseball fans and the White Sox. And Bud Selig, as he was trying um, over and over to land a team, he tried National League expansion. Uh, he tried American League expansion and came close, but just but failed both times. Then he actually had a deal, a handshake deal with one of the Allen brothers who owned the White Sox to buy the White Sox and move them to Milwaukee. And the other Allen brother at the very last minute nixed that agreement and the White Sox stayed in Wisconsin. So it very easily could have been the Milwaukee White Sox. Like that, that was a, that was a done deal. So uh, after that fell apart, um, the way he tells it, you know, the the stories are great. Uh, The stories of the timing of them is always perfect. And, 
Uh, but the yeah. way he tells it is he's just digesting the disappointment of the White Sox. And he picks up a newspaper and sees uh, a story about the Seattle Pilots who are going into their own financial trouble after only one season. And uh, there's an effort to, you know, perhaps move them. And that begins the negotiation uh, that ultimately leads to the Pilots being bought by Bud Selig's group in bankruptcy court and moving, you know, that happens one week before opening day, 1970. And a lot of the book I did, I wanted to explore a little bit about, you know, how, what happened in that interim crazy week between winning the club in bankruptcy court and literally opening day at County stadium. Yeah. Um, It's something that is so unique and and it's so, uh, you know, as much as baseball operates on the fly, sometimes, today especially um, this year especially this year and i think derek we see that in playoffs to in the playoffs sometimes that yeah when i started covering playoff series for mlb.com i was surprised by the by how sort of quickly things happen and decisions are made on the fly and when this guy is going to be available and when this workout's going to be and how it all works it very much happens still on the fly to some degree Great but point. Moving an entire franchise in one week is not something that would happen. This is such a little trivial question, but I got to ask: Did they? How did they? Did they have jerseys ready? Like they had a team name picked out if they moved? Did they have jerseys, or did they play in Seattle Pilots stuff when they opened? Well, I they, should know that. No, no. Well, Derek, uh, I sent you a copy of the book. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't read that part yet. I went. I honestly. <laughs> To be honest, I went to like the modern time to look and then I got caught up in the photos. I'll be honest, the photos are gorgeous. But I went yeah, to read the like the the time when I've covered the Cardinals Brewers. And the photos are the key to the book we did. And no, the that writing is really good. good. Well, thank you, thank you. So the two things that stood out to me about the uniforms is number one, the colors of the brewers, um, the new brewers were supposed to be navy and red. Okay. And that harkened back to the minor league Milwaukee Brewers who played up on the north side of Milwaukee at Borgia mm-hmm. Field, this little old neighborhood ballpark that Bud Selig and Bobby Euchre used to peek through the fences to see That's basically awesome. AAA games. Yeah. Um, and then the Milwaukee Braves adopted Navy and, and Red. So Bud, being an absolute um, acolyte of the Milwaukee Braves, his dream when they secured a new team was to have these new Milwaukee Brewers play in those same colors as an homage to the Braves and the minor league Milwaukee Brewers. Well, when you get a team with one week to go and the equipment truck is literally sitting in Utah, waiting to learn whether it's going to go to Seattle or Milwaukee for opening day. I did see that part. It was in Salt Lake city. I did. I did. Okay. Yep. And there, so there there was no time to, um, to, you know, come up with new uniforms. So literally what they did is they ripped Seattle, they ripped pilots. If you people can picture that, they're cool, pretty sweet uniforms. They ripped off pilots. Um, there was a number on one chest and the logo on the other. Um, and then the arms had this sort of, uh, you know, marine themed uh, gold piping. I forget what they call it. There's a there's a nickname for it. Th- that's on the hat was on the hats, too. But they kept that on the sleeves. They ripped off the logos on the chest, sewed on Brewers, and boom, played opening day. That's and amazing. 
if you go back every now and then, one of the pilot, one of the 1970 Brewers jerseys rather come up for auction. And over the course of time, as these things have like aged and yellowed, you can see much more clearly the stitching from, <laughs> from those original logos that they tore off. So yeah, yeah literally with days to go, they tore off the logo, um, slapped on Brewers. There was just no time to do anything else. And it was one of the million things that happened in those seven days. Um, and, you know, I, it, that was one of the most fascinating parts is talking to Bud Selig about those days. I think so much was happening at once that the memory is so foggy because I would ask something about, well, how did you do this? How did you hire broadcasters? How did you, mm-hmm. where did you, where did you even get tickets on that short of notice? Um, and a lot of the details are sort of lost to time. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the men and women who helped him get through those days have left us, um, including one of my favorites, Betty Grant. Uh, Derek, I don't know if you coming up to Milwaukee all these years ever ran into Betty Grant, but she was the receptionist at County Stadium and then in the beginning years of Miller Park. And um, she was a temporary employee who uh, one of those first Two, three, four days, Bud Selig showed up at County Stadium, and here's this woman who introduces herself as Betty Grant, and he put her to work doing everything. Um, And she ended up being the the receptionist and was there for, you know, through – in the book, I counted out how many GMs and managers, you know, all of them basically, and she retired uh, pretty soon after they moved into Miller Park and – was just one of those, you know, you, you know how it is too, Derek, at the ballpark. Aggie, you have Aggie there in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. There are people who are just a fixture of the stadium. And Doug Melvin's the one who taught me that the game's all about people. Whether, you know, whatever, you, whether you work in the sport or whether you play it, um, it, it comes down to the people. And, and yeah. Betty Grant was one of those pretty special people that was just part of the fabric of the franchise. That's awesome. My, my, my family connection to the Brewers is more through the Braves. Um, though I did go to a Brewers game, and it is the first place that I ever had my mom buy me a beer. She came back to the seats <laughs> with a beer and a brat, and so I drank. That's the first time I had a beer with my mom was at a Brewers game. Um, but my dad was a huge Braves fan. That's where he fell in love with baseball. Um, Eddie Matthews was his favorite player. And when you mentioned the, how popular they were, and that's a lot of what I heard when I was a kid was about the Milwaukee Braves and how amazing they were and incredible they were, and then how they tore his heart out when they moved, and he was never going to like a National League team again, and we were never going to go to a National League game. I was like, wait, what? Well, <laughs> how yeah, how'd mean, that work? The, the rise and fall of the Milwaukee Braves is a fascinating story, and there are, I mean, there are books written about it. Um, one that stands out to me is called Bushville Wins. They were derided as Bushville by big cities like New York. And then they beat the Yankees in the Mm -hmm. 57 series. But I mean, think about the rise and fall. They come from Boston in 1953 to this big new stadium they'd built down in the Valley and, um, you know, just outside downtown Milwaukee. And by 1957, they win the World Series. 58, they have another seven game World Series against the Yankees and lose. They've got Aaron and Matthews and Warren Spahn and Lou Burdett. I mean, all of the Red Shane Deanst was Red the final piece for yeah. the 1957 Braves, got him in a trade. So they've got all these Hall of Fame elite players uh, win a World Series, first 
city to National League city to draw two million to the baseball team, and then you know, boom, nineteen sixty five, it's over. It's in. It's a really incredible story, uh, and up and down, and and you know, heart like your dad. There were so many people who were just totally heartbroken, and yeah. and look, Bud Selig was one of them, and he still talks about it today. Well. I appreciate you taking us through the history of the Brewers and your book is called the Milwaukee Brewers at 50 by Adam McAlvey. This beautiful little coffee or not little. It's huge. It's very, <laughs> it's very heavy, uh, <laughs> beautiful coffee table book. And the, the photos are great. Um, I enjoyed the, the modern stories that you tell as well. And now I have reason to go back and read the, the previous ones. And we'll talk about the current Brewers, which the Cardinals have yet to see. So Cardinal fans have really yet to see after I tell people about our sponsor, the best podcast in baseball brought to you by closet by design. Imagine your home totally organized. Closet by Design specializes in custom closets, pantries, laundry rooms, garages, and more. Now get 40% plus an additional 50% off. Closet by Design, 314-733-9855. That's Closets by Design, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. Adam, tell us about the 2020 Brewers. What what are they? They don't hit, Derek. And who, who does? <laughs> well, that's true. You know what? That that is true. And I'm saying that uh, as the most recent game played, they scored 19 runs on 21 hits. So it's even adding to the weirdness of 2020 is that they finished their most recent road trip with uh, an absolute shellacking of the Detroit Tigers and looked like a Brewers offense like we have not seen this year. They went into that game 28th in the majors and runs per game. And they've kind of been, you know, sitting at the bottom of the national league and runs per game with, you know, pick your team du jour. It's been the pirates for a while. The reds have been down there and the brewers have been down there. So you're right. Nobody's hitting in 2020. It's really strange to watch Christian Yelich be mortal and be, you know, the most frustrated man on the field instead of an MVP. Um, and it is just one of the challenges like all teams are facing. It's affecting the hitters more, whether it was the quick ramp up and, you know, not having all those at bats in in a normal spring training um, or the pitching continues to get better. I think that's a factor Mm -hmm. or that the hitters are somehow more impacted than the pitchers by no vibe in the ballpark, no energy, no buzz. I I don't know. I, I can't, it's probably, all of those things put together, but it is all around baseball. You know, pick your pick your city. You can drop in and have an argument about how great hitter X is is not hitting. And um, when your great hitters don't hit, it really has an impact on your offense. It, is it possibly related to to who's missing from the lineup? Mustakas goes to Cincinnati. Kane opts out during that weekend that the Cardinals spent there in quarantine at the Fister Hotel. I mean, is it at all possible that sort of the ignition switch and one of the middle order hitters are, are gone? Absolutely. And, and the other guy is Yasmani Grandal, who got a yeah. five-year deal from the White Sox. And the Brewers just did not want to go four years with Grandal or Moustakis. And they opted for this kind of platoon approach where they signed all kinds of veteran players, including Jed Jerko, the former Cardinal. And the idea was to, you know, have these left-right platoons at first base, third base, to an extent catcher where they brought in a lefty Omar Narvaez, and they had Manny Pena, who's pretty good against left-handed pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, even a little in right field, they were going to mix and match with uh, Avasail Garcia, who was brought in, and then 
you know, a guy like Ryan Braun or maybe Ben Gamble, who's a lefty. Mm-hmm. And it's just on almost all of those instances, it's not worked. Really, the, the of their imports, Jed Jerko is the only guy who can really say, you know, he's playing great. And the, he's being tested right now because now he's all of a sudden their everyday first baseman, wow. essentially. Um, and now instead of having these favorable matchups because he's been kind of platooned, now he's going to play every day. So it's a big test for him. Um, you know, can he do this against the best right-handed pitchers in the league? And he's going to start to see more of them. So it, it's, they had this idea to do this sort of depth approach over the course of 162. And then of course, everything got turned upside down. And I don't think they ever had a chance to figure out, you know, was that just a bad decision? Did they make bad choices? And did they have to revisit their systems uh, that, that led them to those decisions? Or is this all just 2020 weirdness? And you gotta imagine. Gotta, I, I don't know how you decide that. Well, I think you probably, because it's a little bit like what the Tampa Rays do, right? Like the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, they went and got Jose Martinez from the Cardinals. And one of the reasons they wanted to is to have that guy who was like a left-handed neutralizer out in the AL East and just a guy who really hits well against left-hand. And they've done that in other positions as well. Um, but in the small sample size theater of 60 games, and oh, by the way, we're going to tear up the, the, you know, tear up the schedule. And now a third of your games will be against the American league central and not the, you know, the sliver of games that you had against the American League East. I mean, it's just, it radically altered things. I would imagine that that has, you kind of almost have to take it as an outlier and say that we've seen that kind of platoon approach work for other teams. So it just didn't work in a small, in a short window. Yeah. And no, I don't think that there are like clear answers to that. I don't know that they really know whether it's 2020 weirdness or a poor yeah. decision. And it's something it's, they're, they're going to have to analyze that, I think, um, in the offseason. But, I mean, right now, everybody's just trying to figure it out with the pieces they've got. And, and David Stearns, at the trade deadline, um, he, he worked to add a bat. And he said up until five minutes before the deadline, he thought they were going to add. Mm-hmm. And we don't know who that was. And it sounds like it wasn't necessarily one guy that they had targeted. They were working on kind of parallel talks. And it just, it was one of those times he said where they couldn't get it to the finish line. So it would have been interesting. Like Marte would have been interesting, right? Like Marte. uh, Like who? Like Marte. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, like uh, the Reds get Brian Goodwin. That's a guy who could have helped the Brewers. Frazier could have helped the Brewers. Um, We we don't know. Um, We don't know yet which guy that they were working on, but they did you know, make some kind of effort, but really their, their, their moves to address this offensive has, has been, it's kind of addition by subtraction. They, they cut loose Brock Holt after only 30 at bats, which you'd never do in a normal year. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they cut loose Justin smoke who they signed for first base. And they thought they were, they thought they saw things in the data, hard hit and, and numbers like that, that made them think he had a resurgence in him especially playing at Miller Park, which has been friendly to many a left-handed hitter um, recently that they've brought in. And it just didn't work. He he didn't make enough contact. Hmm. So they moved on from him, and now they find themselves with this sort of group effort at first. Um, And it's it's been, you know, nothing's worse 
than when your team doesn't hit it. And I think fans all over the country are experiencing this. It looks like they don't care. And Uh when really it's the opposite, they probably care too much. And that leads to pressing, which leads to, you know, exacerbating your problem scoring runs. And, um, you know, Milwaukee, like many clubs, is trying to figure this out. Watching the Cubs, you know, I've seen them a lot here in condensed fashion. I mean, imagine this all 10 games between the Cubs and the Cardinals was at Wrig- were at Wrigley this year. How crazy yeah. is that? Like, I, I, I won't cover a Cubs Cardinals game at Bush Stadium. And as things stand right now, uh, you know, the Cubs would host the Cardinals of all things in the opening round of the playoffs, and it would be at Wrigley Field. So it was just all, all the games. Um, or I guess that's a, as things stood a few days ago. But uh, it, it, watching that Cubs lineup, it's like, how do they not hit that? Some of them just look lost and it's not yeah. very hard contact. It's, you know, they're, they're hitting, they were hitting 212, 215 ish at Wrigley Field. And Paul Sullivan had this stat that the lowest average for the team ever at Wrigley Field was 234. And it's like that, I mean, that it's a, such a wide gap. Now, again, it's 30 games. So, 30 games, anything can happen in a month. A team can go through that terrible kind of stretch in a month, but they have the other five months to make up for it. And here they don't. I, I just find it fascinating how much teams are struggling offensively. Um, Adam, what, what were the expectations for the Brewers coming into this season? Did they fancy themselves a division contender? Did they fancy themselves a, a pennant contender? Were they a title contender? What, what were their expectations going in? And did those at all change? come the end of July when the season actually started? Well, you know, they they brought down payroll mm-hmm. rather significantly, about 20%. But that was the topic of the entire offseason, was cutting payroll coming off back-to-back postseason series. And there was a lot of angst about that. But then they signed Christian Yelich to this $215 million mega deal to keep him locked up. That was the Friday before the world turned upside down. So mm-hmm. that sort of, you know, eased a lot of the frustration. It, it made it make sense a little bit more. Okay, this is where we were marshalling our payroll. Um, so, you know, I, I think they felt like they were, I, I think they felt like they were a contender, but they were going to do it in a different way with this kind of, the, the way that they've approached their pitching in the last couple of years has kind of been strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. And they've been criticized for not having a Jack Flaherty or a, you know, a top guy. Um, but then they've kind of, you know, here they are in the playoff start and they're in the postseason. So the the sort of depth approach really worked for them, particularly in September. And it's almost like they took that approach to pitching and applied it to the offense. And they were going to try to do offense by numbers mm-hmm. in terms of bodies. And, yeah. and just win as many matchups individually in a game as possible because – you know, you you watch these games and it's often determined by who wins that matchup in the sixth inning where a team has first and third one out and they need a couple of runs. And the Brewers were going to aim to win more of those matchups than usual. Um, so, you know, I don't think that it was like they were printing World Series tickets, but they certainly felt like they were going to be a, a contending team. Um, and then whether that changed or not, I just don't think they knew because nobody knew how these 60 games were going to play out. I will say the most prescient guy in the whole thing was Christian Yelich because when they regathered for summer camp at Miller park, he, on one of his zooms, he said, 
um, without 162 games for things to normalize, mm-hmm. great players, some great players are going to have horrible years. Now, I don't think he was going to be one of those guys. I don't think he thought he was going to be one of those guys. But he ends up being one of those guys who's stuck in this sort of small sample hell. And he gets off to such a terrible start that you have to throw out any notion that you're going to be able to make it up over the course of what's normally six months. It, um, is that so at he, all possible that it's because he hasn't faced the Cardinals yet? Uh, because he likes to hit against the Cardinals? <laughs> yeah, that is sure a theory that I haven't... Um, that is a theory that I haven't explored, but that is a pretty good, uh, you know, that would be good for him as, as far as finishing because the Brewers as a result of, well, it's probably the same for you guys as a result of uh, that canceled series in early on in, in Miller park. Um, it's 10 of the Brewers final. Now I'm going to get my numbers messed up. 10 of the Brewers final 16 are against the Cardinals. So I assume mm-hmm. it's the same for the Cardinals against the Brewers. So they're they're going to get plenty of opportunity to see each. Other. Yeah, yeah. We're starting right off the hop with a five game series in three days. How are the Brewers set up for that kind of um, smush of games? Well, well, they're set up well theoretically if they could get through the weekend against the Cubs in good shape, um, because as we're talking, Derek, the Brewers are coming off three off days in an eight day span. The sort of thing that the Cardinals don't, you know, because they had all those unfortunate off days early, aren't going to have the luxury of. The schedule, uh, you know, gave the Brewers a lot of rest in September after a really heavy August. So um, they, they theoretically should come into that pretty well rested. And again, they have kind of depth of, of pitching um, even if they don't have what, well, we can talk about Corbin Burns if you want. They sure. don't have what people would think of as an ace leading the way, but in Corbin Burns, the way he's developed this year, they basically do. And the Cardinals are going to get him right off the bat in one of those games in the open on the opening day of that, that series. Well, I want I want to talk about him. What, what has been the the change well i don't know if the change is the right word what has been the improvement that he's made and what has that meant to the brewers well it has it has been a change you know all these teams now are invested in technology as we know mm-hmm. and many of them have pitching labs where they put these guys and they you know they put them on a mound surrounded by all these high speed cameras and um, with diodes strapped to them to get all this <laughs> data and they uh, Corbin Burns had a horrible year last year. Mm-hmm. Um, 17 homers and 49 innings, I think it was. And the stuff is great. The fastball is electric. The slider is one of the best in baseball as far as the data and the spin. Um, but it it wasn't coming together. So last year in the middle of the year, he was struggling so bad up and down that they sent him to this lab and started work that continued in the offseason. And basically they honed some of his secondary stuff. And then they, they really, uh, they really honed his cutter and the cutter has gone to an every now and then pitch for him to like clearly his second pitch. And as a result with the cutter and then a separate slider and the fastball and the changeup here and there, he is one, he's become a guy who can pitch to all quadrants instead of where the hitter pretty much knows 
it's good stuff, but he pretty much can focus on, you know, down and away and eliminate some of the other quadrants. So he's become a guy now where it's a much more uncomfortable bat for the hit for the hitter. And it's, it's reflected in the numbers as of his last outing in Detroit. He, he has enough innings now because they, they piggybacked some guys early as everyone was building up innings. Burns just now qualifies for the leaderboards and he's, he's all over them. So, I mean, he's a legit Cy Young contender now in the national league, fewest hits per nine, uh, best batting average against top five and, you know, ERA strikeout rate strikeouts to walks. He's, he's, he's a weapon and it's, you know, it's, it's an example again of like pitching takes time. Yes. Yeah. You know, you, the Cardinals had it even with, even with some great like Flaherty, there's, there's bumps and it's not, it's not always linear as they develop. And um, you have to be willing to take some of those lumps. And it, it's one of those things. Again, we talk about this season uh, with, with another guy, the Cardinals will see is Adrian Hauser, the youngish mm. pitcher. Yeah. Um, Really good sinker. Now he's in the more taking his lumps category where he's as a sinker baller, you, you, you have games where you're going to give up nine hits and he's had games like that where he's kind of been dinked and dunked. And, um, you know, in a 162 game season, you live with that in, in the name of development in the 60 game season. It's really hard because every game is so magnified. So the fact that Burns has taken a big step forward has been a really big deal for the Especially yeah, that's yeah, fascinating. I mean, again, you, like you can look at the contrast throughout the division, right? Every team is struggling somewhat with offense. Um, the Cubs have yet to develop a pitching prospect really in their time in this current era. And whereas the Cardinals have really made that a priority and they have developed so many pitching prospects that they populate other pitching staffs with Sandy Alcantara and Zach Gallen and Marco Gonzalez and these players that they've traded around or um, or moved on from who are now major league pitchers elsewhere. And the Brewers have, I think the Brewers have done an interesting job of, of building pitching depth to allow for kind of what you're talking about, that the, the, the bumps and, you know, ups and downs of pitching development, but so that they can keep you know, like having at least a fresh supply or depth of young pitchers who may have a high ceiling, but at least can contribute. And, then they also, you know, they have, you know, I don't know, they, with their offense, they, they've done a good job to acquire um, and then build around a guy, obviously, that they, they drafted in Braun. Yeah, and look, I think in, just on the pitching side, what, what the Brewers have done a good job of is installing a culture where uh, it's not a slight if you get moved between the rotation and the bullpen. Oh, this idea good, yeah. that Craig Council talks about is, is be, a, be an out-getter. And it's one thing to say that, you know, it's mm-hmm. another to really have that legitimately be the culture to where there aren't hurt feelings. If, uh, you know, you come out of a game after five innings because you've got a fully stocked bullpen and you've got these multi-inning relievers like Josh Hader to come in and finish the game. Um, th- that's changed throughout baseball, right? Like mm-hmm. where it, it used to be, you know, this culture of, this is my guy. I'm going to let him get through this. Um, and, and to be an, a quote unquote ace, you needed to be that guy to fight through those seventh and eighth and ninth innings. <sighs> Pitchers just aren't necessarily given that opportunity as much anymore for good or bad. And I, yeah. I think, you know, if, if that's going to be your philosophy, which it is in Milwaukee, you have to get the players to buy into it and, 
that's probably been, if you point to one thing that Craig Council has done best as manager, it's that. It's installing this, you know, outgetter mentality. And it it has it has led to good things. Now, now Corbin Burns has the equipment to be that guy to go out and throw all nine innings. And if he's good enough, they'll they'll definitely let him do it. But it's because he sort of put the ego aside for a time and has pitched in all these different roles and gotten the development where he can get it. That's interesting. So one of the big, probably through all, through the years, one of the bigger disagreements I had with Milwaukee hero Mike Matheny when he was manager <laughs> of the Cardinals actually stemmed from that kind of situation where uh, Adam Wainwright was pitching against the Rangers. And, you know, Adam Wainwright is your ace. I mean, he's he was – the guy he was you know this was before the most recent run of injuries and he was the guy who was leading the rotation and setting an example and all that stuff and he was removed in the middle of an inning with the deciding run on base and I asked after the game you know how do you have your guy the guy that you profess you know is going to lead your rotation watch from the dugout as somebody else throws the pitches that determines his game Like I didn't like that was something that, you know, Dave Duncan and Tony La Russa and, you know, Chris Carpenter and Matt Morris and, you know, these guys, Roger Clement, these guys talked about, you know, especially when I was a young rider, um, you know, and and Carpenter would and Woody Williams and these guys would talk about the team within a team and sort of what is the difference between an ace and your lead guy and your fourth guy? Well, your fourth guy is learning how to do that somewhat by watching because he's going to be removed from that inning, but your ace finishes it. Your ace throws the pitch that decides the game because that's what he does. And boy, that, that was, that, that that lasted a good week of uh, just me asking that question. Um, It took, it, it was not, we had an ongoing disagreement as a result of that. My right to ask that question versus his right to make that move. And, I, I stand by my right to ask that question. Um, I, the players were asking the same question, so For I sure. think it's fair. And, uh, you know, and it's fine that he made that move. Maybe, maybe as you kind of say, maybe that's what he was trying to get to um, and could have articulated that message a little bit better, but it didn't. And I, I found it fascinating. But you're right, the culture is changing a little bit. Um, but, you know, the, 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 there is still an element of that culture that's still here because we see that with Wayne right now. Like, what he has done this season is remarkable um, when you consider like coming out of the outbreak quarantine, no one had thrown, no one had faced a, an opponent in 17 days. And he's like, give me the ball. I'll go start against the Sox." or the day not too long ago when, you know, the bullpen was fried and he sends a text message to, to, uh, to the manager, Mike Schilt and says, I got you and walks around the room and tells relievers to take the day off and then goes and throws his first complete game um, since 2016, I mean, he's been he's really rescued the team in a lot of ways because of all the roster moves by maintaining the culture that you you know kind of described that the Brewers have moved away from. I find that fascinating. It's interesting. Well, it's it, a contrast. It, it, it does feel like kind of a turning point in the game, doesn't it? Where like mm-hmm. the Wainwrights are the, the Max Scherzers. Um, you know, those guys are, are fewer the than, they, than they once were. The Verlanders, yeah, they're fewer than they once were. And, you know, it's 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 about data now. And, yeah. you know, the romanticism 
there's some romanticism involved in the in the idea you're talking about how my guy absolutely throw the pitch that does and that has been replaced by this stone cold data analysis and i don't know if it's good or bad but it's definitely the way it is with uh you know the, the rise of the ivy league gm um it is the way that they view navigating games and navigating seasons um, absolutely and, and to fight it seems futile um but look you know again i think the other thing that that gets misunderstood a little bit is that team you know i hear from fans who get frustrated and say you know team x doesn't want their guy to throw nine innings i promise you craig council would love for corbin burns to go out on monday against the cardinals and throw all nine innings um, seven, seven innings. So oh, that's right. Yes. Oh man, <laughs> here we go. Yeah. Um, uh. it, it, but, but it's, it's, you know, he's also going to, they're going to manage to win these games and it's mm-hmm. how do you collect in a nine in a game, 27 outs. And it's, um, you know, that, that romantic notion of, you know, the guy wiping sweat from his brow and digging back for that one final pitch it's kind of a bygone, it's, it's sort of a bygone era, sadly. I have a Matheny story that I think we can tell now he's that, not there anymore. Have I ever told you about getting yelled at by Mike Matheny at, in a hotel lobby at 3 o'clock in the morning? No, but if there's anybody who can empathize with it, <laughs> it's me. Derek, what year was it that the Cardinal? it was 2014, Cardinals-Red Sox, right? Mm-hmm, 2013. The World Series, yeah, 2013, 2013, and the Cardinals got stuck on the tarmac going to Boston, and they ordered yep. pizza and that whole thing. Yeah. So yeah. I was in Boston with our dear friend Jennifer Langosh, one of the best teammates at MLB.com I've ever worked with, and um, she had to do some preview. She was the Cardinals beat writer at the time, and she had to do some preview piece or whatever. So I met her at. I just met her, I think, downstairs, and I sat in the lobby. I think I ordered a, a martini or two, and she's writing, and I just hung out with her in the in the lobby. And we start. she starts to see on social media about the Cardinals stuck on the tarmac. As, were you already in Boston by then? I was, yeah. Yep, I was at yeah, Fenway so Park. Yeah, so you probably had happened. the same thing where you're trying mm-hmm. to – and this becomes a story. Yeah, so, absolutely. becomes a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> We decide we're going to go to the Cardinals team hotel when they finally get there mm-hmm. and try to cover this story. And we come up with a plan that, you know, guys with families or whatever, it's late. It's been a long day. You can't ask it. You can't try to do an interview with the players just trying to go to bed. Well, they all were trying to go to bed. So we came up with this plan where we talked, you know, we were going to try to catch up a, a single player. Or two. So Matt Carpenter was my target. And um, he actually very kindly agreed to like just tell me for two minutes about this experience. So I started interviewing Matt Carpenter in the lobby of this hotel at whatever hour. And over my shoulder, I hear, what in the hell do you think you're doing? And I turn and it's Mike Matheny. And he's like, not necessarily even talking to me. He's kind of talking to Matt Carpenter. And Basically telling it, and he looks at Matt Carpenter and he goes, go to bed. <laughs> and that was the end of our interview. And, um, but I think I was a distraction because Jen was able to do what she needed to do and get what she needed to get and cover the story. And I think the next day they, well, the next day they probably worked out and then they, they played after that. 
or did they lose a workout and then the next day they played? They lost a workout. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. Uh, so the next day they work. played. Yeah. yeah. So Mike Matheny was not pleased with me sparing Matt Carpenter for sleep. And I can't remember how Carpenter did in that game, but if he had a poor game, I apologize for costing him that extra minute of slumber. The extra minute. Well, they, they lost in game six. So there you go. Yeah. And another thing I remember about covering that series is I was out, out in the auxiliary press box because there's just no room for all of us. And in Fenway, it was kind of out by Pesky's pole. And A, I was sitting next to Mike Pesca, then of NPR, who was one of my favorites. Mm. And B, I had a seat at the end of the aisle. And across the aisle from me were, were Sox fans. So it was like covering a game, but having a ticket to the game. And it was a really cool experience to work that series um, and, you know, at Fenway Park and really feel like you were attending the game. It was a, it was one of my favorite moments. The first World Series that I ever covered was 2004 Cardinals versus Sox. And that's where I was. I was out um, out by Pesky Pole, um, actually uh, out near where Mark Bellhorn's series changing home run went. And I was out there um, in the in the aux boxes we call it was in the seats and you're right we're surrounded by not just red sox fan but hardcore red sox fans and at one point in time because 2004 remember was like they're actually going to win this thing and break the curse and holy cow can't believe he came back from the yankees and everything like that game one um i believe it was game one but there you know, at one point in time, the dropkick Murphys did a concert in center field yep. while Kurt Schilling was warming <laughs> up. It was like, it was crazy. But at one point they started shouting, give us our seats back. And because oh, they no. were so angry that the media had seats they were coming for you, huh? That fans didn't get to watch the magic of that team. And it, it was, it, I mean, I, I get where they're coming from. Like I empathize with that or, is empathize the right word? Well, sympathize. I sympathize with that. Um, and I got it. And I was like, oh, man, but how are we going to work? <laughs> like they were yeah. just they were just shouting at us and telling us to leave. And why can't real fans have real seats and stuff? It was it was something um, to, to go through it. And it was very memorable. I have a I have a photo that I took. And, you know, that's obviously that 2004. So before, you know, we all had a camera in our pocket. But I made sure to take a camera with me um, just to take, you know, just to just to have some, I didn't know how many world series I was going to cover if I was ever going to cover a world series again, but I knew that this is what I wanted to do for a career. And so I wasn't going to miss this chance. And um, I I have a photo that's still on my computer that runs in that slideshow um, from that. And uh, I also have a photo of, you know, the late Brian Burwell and my friend Tom Timmerman at the scoreboard there along the green monster and everything. And it, it, it was it was a remarkable thing to cover, but I'll never forget the like the, the that chant still echoes because it's like, well, they're not wrong. They're, you know, no, no, but I mean, not it's not you. Yeah, you're not in control. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. the other, I remember the dropkick Murphys in 2013 as well, and the yeah. stadium shaking and thinking it before Game Six, like the series is is ending today. Yeah, and then it's because you I were. Also, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's because you it were is in the my, Yeah, probably. I kept. Matt Carpenter up. He didn't make the final out of the World Series, so did did he? Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Okay. He, he told See, us later it's because he was exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> For that, you know, then you gotta you pack up and you gotta walk down to the clubhouse. So I had my backpack and with my computer and everything in it, go in the clubhouse, 
And one of the stories I had been assigned was the old free agents to be story. And that, oh, yeah. uh, um, Chris Carpenter was one of them that year. And mm-hmm. so I was one of the last guys in the clubhouse because I, as I remember it, right. He did not speak after that, that day. Um, so finally then Yachty came out and yelled, you know, eliminated reporters from the clubhouse because they were dissecting having just lost the world series. So we hustled out and, when I had walked in, I had put my bag under this table that was like the video table. Mm. And so when he shooed us out, I, I left and left my bag. Oh. So now it's World Series is over. Uh, and I, Chris Tuno, our fine uh, friend in the Cardinals media relations department, thankfully saved me. I texted him or something and he comes out with my bag and this look like, get out of here. So I, I was not my finest moment for MLB.com covering the yeah, 2013 World Series. It's quite a 24 um, hours. Very memorable. Yeah, that's a good segue because you brought up the free agents to be story. The Brewers avoided that preemptively with this contract that you mentioned for Yelich, a huge deal. Um, but it did come a week before everything shut down, and I and I look back on that as sort of a sign of optimism. You know, like, like, would the Brewers have made that deal had they known the entire bottom was going to fall out of an ent- of a season financially? Yeah. And I wonder, you know, from your perspective, what position does that put the Brewers in coming out of 2020 financially? They already cut payroll. Now you got a season where there is going to be net zero in ticket revenue. They're they're. They're pretty reliant. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they're actually really reliant on ticket revenue. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, they're a small market team already, so they're not going to have the broadcast rights fees of, say, even a Cardinals team or let alone a Dodgers or Rangers team. Uh, so where where does this put them in? And and what kind of I, I mean, what kind of bind does maybe even the Yelich contract present for them now? Well, look. Craig Council has told us many times that the key to navigating 2020 is that when you don't know, admit it. And mm-hmm. this is a case where I don't know, because what does 2021 look like, Derek? I, I don't right. know that any of us really know what that looks like from a fans in the stands point of view. Um, so I saw are, fans in an NFL game. Uh, yeah. Well, true, true. In the so, same state where the Cardinals play. So that's and, odd. Well, and, and we all better hope that there's fans in the stands that, for major league games because yeah. for the health of the industry, it's, it's needed. And, and you're right about Milwaukee. They're a unique team in that they have the smallest, it's the smallest media market, but they've, you know, they've, they've pushed payroll up to 110, 115, mm-hmm. 120. Um, and it's a result of ticket sales where they are consistently in the top third in major league baseball in attendance even playing in the smallest market. And part of that is, you know, with the roof, they can draw from the whole state and they do a really good job of that with group sales. I think they're like consistently top five in baseball and group ticket sales. Wow. And they rely a lot on ticket revenue and are taking absolute bath this season. And had they known that the game was about to shut down and there would be no fans in the stands in 2020, would they have signed Christian Yelich? I don't know. I mean, when you make a deal like that, you are, you are, you know, obviously you're committing was nine years, including what was left on his current contract. So you're thinking beyond, you know, 2020, but still, what is, what is the financial landscape of baseball coming out of this? 
And I would add that in an additional kick in the pants, the Brewers um, media contract is actually up. Yeah. So they have to negotiate that amid this pandemic. And now what, what is that going to look like compared to what it would have been in a normal year when you're coming off, you know, a pretty strong period for the team? Um, I don't know. And it's added to the list of many unknowns. Um, and it, it's, it, it is a, it is a difficult year for everybody. Um, but the brewers are in a particularly perilous situation, um, because of all those factors, but look, it's just been, it's been a lousy year for Milwaukee in general. They lose their, you know, our festival season. It's such a big deal. We lost Summerfest. um, we lost the Democratic National Convention, which was going to be right. a huge, massive inf- in infusion of um, cash for the city. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks were the best team in the NBA. Now they're bounced in the second round. Um, so wow. I think everybody's holding their breath for the Brewers and Packers because nobody expects good things to happen at this point because it's just been, again, it's a lousy summer for everybody. And there are things much more um, important and um, dire happening around the country than sports and, you know, uh, economic activity in the city, but it's just been, it's been a tough year here and everybody is, I don't know. It feels like everybody's kind of holding their breath to see what happens for these. Well, one of the reasons why when they run the Sims and do all the postseason projection numbers, you know, the percentage chance of making the postseason, one of the reasons why the Cardinals looks a little lower than maybe a first glance at their record would indicate is because they have 10 games remaining against the Brewers. They're going to play each other so often that that's yeah. where their postseason for both teams, where their postseason, um, you know, chances are going to be determined. Um, what was the Brewers view of the Cardinals after that outbreak? I mean, it's, they've so detached. Imagine that they were worried about their health and they said all the right things. Um, but, you know, I mean, that was a defining weekend for the Brewers, too, because it was when Kane opted out. And it was in reaction to some degree to what was happening with the Cardinals. He, wow. You know, we we spoke to him um, when the Brewers and Reds opted not to play after the Milwaukee Bucks opted not to play as uh, sort of in unity with uh, the protesters in Kenosha. Mm-hmm. Um we we connected with Lorenzo Cain for the first time. And, you know, that was part of the, the conversation was him explaining his thinking. And he said it was something he had been thinking about before that weekend, that, that week where the Cardinals were at the Fister. But that was sort of the final, final straw is the wrong word, but the final thing that tipped him to make that call. It just, he just did not feel like for his family, it was the right situation and, and he opted not to play the rest of the year. So um, it, it had a direct impact in that way. And they certainly miss Lorenzo Kane for all yeah. kinds of reasons, including helping this offense. He's the engine and just what he does in the clubhouse. So, and what he does on defense for the pitching staff. Yeah. Um, yeah. He stabilizes so, the outfield that you're talking about. They're mixing and matching. Yeah. But you know, I don't, I think the Brewers actually did a good job of not pointing fingers. The whole world seemed to be pointing fingers at the Cardinals at that time with very limited information available to them that didn't stop anybody from forming their opinion about 
what had happened and whose fault it was. I think the right. Brewers did a good job of staying away from all that because it does you no good. The games are not played. We'll make them up later. The earth will keep spinning. Thankfully, nobody was, you know, as far as we know, right, Derek? Like, this didn't lead to any bad outcomes for any extended, you know, members of the Cardinals family. You know, that, that's so far, yeah. 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 So yeah. that's that's what mattered. And, and you know, they can make up these baseball games. Um, it's okay. The Brewers lost a home game as part of it. But that's okay, too. They'll get to bat second at one of those games at Bush Stadium at the end. It'll <laughs> yeah. be very weird. Yeah. Um, and, and life will go on. So last thing I want to ask you about is this series sets up for a real challenge for the managers, five games, three days, two double headers, um, bookending a single game on Tuesday, but it also brings in the guys who finished first and second in the manager of the year award voting last year, the guy who won it, Mike Schilt, and the guy who got the most first place votes, Craig council. Um, how is this, what is this brought out in council who, I, I'm sure you hear it the same way I do, who is widely regarded as one of, if not the best manager in the National League. And one of the reasons why the Brewers could pull off that platoon kind of approach that you're talking about, and you described it well with what they do with pitching, is because they have Craig Council as a manager. He's very gifted at spinning a lot of plates and committing to the plates that keep themselves spinning. Yeah, and, and projecting calm when there is yeah. chaos around him. I mean, that is, to me, uh, very high on the list of jobs for a manager. Um, I think I saw that when I would speak to players <clears throat> as the Brewers were rising kind of to prominence in the mid, that, that Prince Fielder era, and Ned Yost had, had not developed that calm yet. And it, it hurt him probably. And I think Ned's acknowledged that when he got to Kansas city and won the world series that he changed his manager. And one way he changed is sort of, you know, not that the nickname was nervous Ned at the time. And it, it impacts a team when your manager is making snap moves at the end of the bench. Um, so look, I think that 2020 emphasizes for me how when we vote for the manager of the year award is the BBWA, we don't know what we're voting. We don't. We don't have the. Inf we don't have all the information. To, to make Do you have twenty minutes to talk about this? Because this me it means a lot to me. Like I, I totally agree. I agree to a certain extent with you with the manager of the year award that we're voting against our preseason predictions. So we're actually like yeah. seeding the cloud for our votes. That it's it's yes. not a vote for the manager who did well. It's a vote for the writers who got it wrong. Like it's us covering. <laughs> and so it's, when it's I, the manager of the most surprising team award, <laughs> right. But the most surprising team is the one that we didn't expect it from when maybe we should have done more research. Like it's like, uh, yeah, yeah. So in 2020, like, I don't know what Mike Schilt is doing behind. I mean, the, the job Mike Schilt has faced this year in holding this together mm -hmm. after that long layoff and now playing all these games in a short number of days. And, you know, it's, it's an incredible job to keep playing good baseball in the circumstance and, and the, with the hand that the Cardinals were dealt here. Um, yeah. And that goes for the whole Cardinals organization. So, uh, but, but look, from me sitting in Milwaukee, if, if that were my vote, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what Craig Council is doing behind the scenes to yeah. keep this train moving. I mean, especially now that we're not in the clubhouse and those little yeah. conversations that you used to have where you could sort of glean a little bit on background about what's going on, those are gone. It's all Zoom. 
and you don't mm. get anything out of Zoom. Yeah. So it, it's it's really difficult to know. I would just say, I'll just say as a blanket statement, the managers in Major League Baseball are doing a hell of a job this year because they're keeping this whole thing rolling. Um, the baseball has been pretty entertaining, even if the offensive numbers are down. And, you know, I, I think all these teams deserve some credit for getting through this. When again, that buzz of the ballpark, I think one thing I've learned or it's been reinforced is that the energy of the fans is a real thing. And the hitters are feeling it for sure. Cause we hear about it all the time. I don't know, Derek, do you, I feel it like mm-hmm. yeah, I feel I, to get up for a game, even as a writer, it sounds so stupid to even say, but um, I find myself having to generate enthusiasm some days huh. to, to do this job well. And I wonder whether part of that is like, you just, it's that, that buzz is lacking. The games don't feel real necessarily. And you almost have to like remind yourself like, no, this is, this is real and this matters. And the team that wins is going to feel really good about it. Might yeah. even have reason to feel better about it, frankly. Right. Because of all the all the challenges and all the sacrifices um, and the weirdness of the whole thing. Covering games at Wrigley was odd. It felt hollow. And, yeah. uh, and one of the things that uh, is part of the assignments that I have is it means writing during the game quite, quite often. Um, yep. In fact, a lot, especially on the road where I have to update an ongoing coverage of the game as it happens um, or work on the notebook or work on whatever. And so, and that, that's true for a lot of writers is they have to write during the game. And so I, you know, done this long enough that you pay attention to the swells of the crowd as yes. to when to look up sometimes, um, because it's like, okay, well, this at bat, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I need to look down and I need to pound out a paragraph on a story or a whole note or whatever. But if I hear a swell in the crowd, I know like, okay, Hey, time to watch. Um, and that's absent. That's completely absent. And so, you know, at Wrigley, that was most profound um, because, you know, it's just, it's a place that, you know, the, the, the piped in fan noise sounds piped in and feels out of place. It's like an anachronism. It's like this ballpark is 110 years old and that technology is 10 months old and this feels off. Um, I'll say Derek, that as you know, you're uh, as someone who's not traveling this year. And so I'm watching the road games from the couch. mm -hmm. uh, It's almost like a football experience this year in that, that, that sort of adage about the, you know, football games, sometimes NFL experience is sometimes better on TV. Yeah. Um, I go up to two games a year at Lambeau and love it. And it's super fun. But I mean, if in terms of like being dialed into the game, the TV experience in the NFL might be better for some fans. It's almost that way with baseball this year, because the crowd noise to me on the TV broadcast is mm-hmm. really effective. And really? I find myself when I'm watching the game, because we never watch games on TV during the regular season. Yeah. And I find myself like, I think it's pretty engaging. And I, you know, every now and then you notice the empty seats and you're kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Reminded of it. Um, Interesting. But it is a totally different experience in person. And for as good as I believe the crowd noise sounds on TV, it sounds totally phony when you're at the stadium. And it, it does. it's yeah. just a different experience. And, yeah. you know, you have to, again, I find myself kind of consciously saying, okay, here we go. Like, dial in and, and let's yeah. and let's cover this game and it sounds stupid people are going to think i'm an idiot 
But, no, um, I don't think so. It, I think it, it's, it's just what it's what my experience has been. Yeah, I mean, the crowd noise reminds you the gravity of the moment, and that's the challenge sure. of writing is to to meet that. So I get that. I, I think that's and and it's probably what like why the Cubs are so chatty in their dugout because they recognize it too. They have to psych themselves up when the yep. crowd isn't there. They have to be there for. And it's 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 a f- interesting thing to watch that Cubs dugout as loud and vociferous and goofy at times as it can be and clapping together and all that. And then, you know, you watch it and then you contrast that with the Cardinals dugout, which is social distant and they can't get far enough away from each other. And they're doing air high fives from opposite ends. And then, you know, you see, uh, say, the Cardinals score a bunch of runs or the Brewers score some runs, as you'll see this weekend against the Cubs, and that dugout just deflates. And there's no fans to generate the momentum again. So I, I think you're right. It, I, um, you mentioned Ned Yost and the Manager of the Year Award. So I once had a – when I was a young writer, I had a Manager of the Year Award, and I, and I had that same sense that we talked about. Like, what am I voting on? What am I really yeah. voting on? Am I voting on the surprise team? Or am I voting on the guy who did the best um, as a manager, who did the most things as a manager? And so I said, you know what? I'm going to approach this ballot like I approach anything. I'm going to go and report it. I'm going to I'm going to quiz. I'm going to ask people. And one of the conversations I had was in his office. I had requested time with Ned Yost and we just spoke off the record. But the reason why I asked him well, and some on the record, too, he, 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 he wanted to give compliments on the record was because he had worked for Bobby Cox and had competed against Tony La Russa, And these were the two leading candidates for the manager of the year award. And I asked him, how do I tell the difference? What do these two guys do that helps me differentiate them from other managers from, you know, that you watch them and you go, oh, well, that's why he is where he is and he does what he does. And I, and I understand that I'm asking about one guy who you don't really like all that much and one guy who you adore. And he was so helpful in like, in crystallizing what he sees in another manager, what makes a manager, um, you know, we we go, oh well, that guy can run a bullpen. That's great. Well, that guy can run a clubhouse, and you don't see that. And here's yeah. how a guy runs a clubhouse. And yep. you know, it just was a very interesting conversation. There, it was there yeah. at Miller Park. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, the manager. So many of the, the so much of the job of the manager, we never see or hear um, navigating. Right crises off the field, family matters, all those things that go into a, a room full of, you know, what normally 20, well, 26 players this year, it would have been 25 guys, plus all your coaches, plus all your extended staff, uh, plus all your minor leaguers. There's a lot, there's, it's managing people as much as it is managing a bullpen, <clears throat> even though the managing the bullpen is what happens out in the public. And that's often what guys get. That's Adam McCauvey, Milwaukee Brewers beat writer for MLB.com and author of the Milwaukee Brewers at 50. Adam, where can people find this book? Because I I think there is somewhat of a kindred spirit relationship between Cardinal fans and Brewer fans. Their histories have intertwined enough, um, both when they were in opposite leagues and now when they're in the same division, that they that they have some shared camaraderie, not not maybe frenemies is a good way to describe them. They're frenemies. Yeah. And there's there's. There's lots of Cardinals there and going all the way back to the big trade at the 1980 winter meetings with, you know, Vukovic and 
fingers and Simmons coming up to Milwaukee. And then I, I tell the story of, uh, you know, some of the stuff in 2011 where the Cardinals were dead in the water. They were making golf plans yeah. for the offseason. And then Niger Morgan called Albert Pujols Alberta. Mm-hmm. And here come the Cardinals. And Ryan Braun says, I think it's in the book that, um, you know, that woke up the Cardinals. And, it, you know, and here they came and they were a force um, in that postseason when Tony La Russa introduced bullpenning, really. Yep. Um, that's my first memory of really seeing that practice in action. And yeah. It was so novel at the time. Um, so there is, I think, enough that, that Cardinals fans would be interested. And the answer to your question is, and I love this verbology because it's what I always is said. It's it's wherever fine books are sold there. The <laughs> finest. The finest leather-bound books, although this one's not. But but re- honestly, you, uh, Triumph Books is the publisher. You can pick it up at their website. Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble has it. You can pick it up online at Target if you have a gift card burning your hole, burning a hole in your pocket. Um, there's uh, some really great indie book sites that will sell the book as well. Um, and there's even really, a local even craft a, beer place selling it. Uh, there is Broken Bat Brewing, which I know you made a visit to. They've been super kind uh, about about uh, helping me get the word out about the book. I honestly think even if you call, a, if you have a favorite bookseller in St. Louis and you want to support a local business, um, I know the book the the bookshop here. Uh, you can ask them for a book and they'll they'll find it for you. So even like my book. I think so. I'll have to check it out. Oh, that'd be something. Yeah. Buy it from uh, Boswell Books here on Downer in Milwaukee. Have you ever checked yeah, it out? Boswell's yeah. is great. Yeah, it's one of the classic. Well, thank you, Adam, for joining me here on the best podcast in baseball. Get organized by Closet by Design of St. Louis. Update your closet, garage, office, pantry, and more. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-BY-D-E-S-I-G-N. Closet by Design, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball which you can find along with all of the Cardinals coverage at stltoday.com. You can also find the podcast at iTunes, where you can listen to individual episodes, download individual episodes, rate and review the podcast, which I'm sure Adam does, goes in there, rates it, reviews it. And I pay attention to those reviews so that I know what direction to take the uh, the podcast in next. Again, Adam McCalvey, beat writer for the Milwaukee Brewers at MLB.com and the author of the Milwaukee Brewers at 50. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much and uh, look forward to seeing you at Miller Park and to have a series and not have what, six days that I spend in downtown Milwaukee in a hotel? You better be, if you're sitting at a table right now, you better be knocking on some wood. Because... I am sitting at a roll-top desk knocking on wood. Okay, yeah. good. For everybody's yeah, health and for the benefit. Yeah, it'd be good to see. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing um, the Brewers, New Jerseys and the, yeah. in person and yep. also to see, I mean, what's going to probably decide these two teams. Um, it's, it was just a really fascinating thing. Both of them are at a tipping point. Um, the yep. Cardinals with their view of their roster and the Brewers with maybe their view of this season and the next one. So fascinating times. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely meaningful baseball in September, even if the circumstances are different, it's in the way it's, in a way, it's what we all expected, is, is these games are going to be big. It's just not all going down the way we thought it would. Thank you very much, Adam, for joining me. I owe you some Rocky Rococo pizza. Yes, perfect. Everybody good? No, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Have a nice evening.